Hello, friends, and welcome to a Chabura public shiur. Tonight we have with us Rabbi Shmuley Phillips, who is no stranger to the Chabura, and together we will be exploring Sefaradi and Ashkenazi Talmudic methodologies, a highly requested topic. This is the first installment of a two-part series, with part two taking place on the 17th, Bezrat Hashem. Yeah, for the new faces, uh, welcome. The Chabura is an online and global Bet Midrash. We have a full program with regular weekly shiurim across a wide array of topics given by Dayanim, rabbis, and leading experts from around the world. We host live events and have a publishing house, which uh, puts out our journal principles and a wide array of cutting-edge books. So I highly recommend you check us out at the Chabura, and uh, we hope you can join us. About our speaker, Rav Shmuley is the author of the highly acclaimed Judaism Reclaimed, and now the newly published Talmud Reclaimed, uh, which I'm currently reading. I highly recommend uh, getting yourself a copy. Uh, Rav Shmuley spent over two decades studying in yeshiva and teaching in a variety of institutions. During this time, he has also completed a law degree from the University of London. Uh, with that said, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us live. And thank you all. We'll be listening after. Rav, thank you so much for being with us. It's always a privilege to learn from you. And the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much for that introduction. To wish everyone a good evening. Chodesh Tov. For those of you, is Rosh Chodesh for some of us? So yes, if I speak for long enough, it'll be Rosh Chodesh for everyone. Uh, so one of the one of the questions I get uh, well, really quite often about my book is, why am I calling it Reclaimed? What, what am I trying to reclaim? Judaism Reclaimed, Talmud Reclaimed. What, what, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to reinvent something. So aside from it being like a good catchy title, that's not really the answer that people want to hear. Very often I find that there are certain really fundamental ideas, um, core ideas, which people really need to be aware of when studying various aspects of Judaism, which have really gone missing, particularly in recent generations. That was the case in Judaism Reclaims. I tried to to bring back some of the main ideas of Rambam, of Shemshun Rafal Hash into so into more mainstream uh, Jewish Jewish uh, areas of discussion. And with this Talmud Reclaimed, I try and do the same. And the first half of the book, you know, which I'm not going to be discussing tonight, that, that talks about how the different parts of the oral tradition, some of it is, is immutable, some of it is Messinai, some of it is from Moshe, some of it can never change, can never be subject to Machloket. But there's a lot of it that can, a lot of it that is supposed to be able to be debated and, and defined and change from generation to generation by the Chachamim, by the Sanhedrin. And that is something which people just aren't, aren't really aware of. And the second part of the book, which I'm going to be discussing this evening, is really the same thing. Understanding the, the vastly diverging methodologies employed by Rishonim, by the, the classic medieval uh, commentators and, and uh, interpreters of the Talmud. These are... The, I mean, in, in standard uh, shiurim in yeshivot today, if we think of a, a standard Gemara share, you get you get the, the, the sugya of Gemara, which is sort of read very very quickly, if at all. And then you have the the, the Maggid Shir will go through the set of the standard, the the, the fashionable, the standard rishonim, and they'll they'll put them all together as if they're one using one simple methodology. In debate with one another, even though they they were they were living in from France to Germany to Spain to to North Africa, very different places over, over several hundred years, and they're all understood or imagined to be 
in some kind of conversation with each other in interpreting the Gemara. And the job of the Magad Shir is often to try and pull together all these different uh, Rishonim, from the Tosfot to the Rambam to Rashi, the, the Rosh, the Rambam, bring them all together into a conversation and and weave together some kind of intricate web to show how they were really on the same same wavelength and there was some, you know, normally some minor matter in which they disagreed upon. And what I try to reclaim really in this book is something which, we're going to see this more in the, in the follow-up share next week, something which, which the earlier commentators, yes, the earlier Achronim, were well aware of, which is that the Rishonim employed fundamentally different methodologies. Their perception of the Talmud, the way they went about studying the Talmud and determining law from the Talmud, was vastly different from one another. And when this is glossed over, um, particularly in contemporary yeshiva study, particularly with the brisk methodology that's going to be more subject to next, next week, the, the true flavor, the true meaning of these Rishonim, it tends to be lost and to some extent really misunderstood. So what I'm going to be looking at this week to start with is just panning out what these different methodologies are. What would the, I'm going to take as the, the two, I say the two polar examples, the methodologies of Rambam, Rif and the Geonim on the one side, and the methodology of the Balitosabas on the other side, there were many Rishonim who fell somewhere between the two of them, particularly um, particularly in uh, the northern Spain or southern France, where the, where the communities converged somewhat, and the, there were some Rishonim that took on aspects of both. But in order to just to demonstrate the differences we have between these methodologies, between that of the Tosafot and that of Rambam, I'm going to be comparing some descriptions and some understanding of the methodologies and then just giving some practical examples to show how differently they went about interpreting the sugyot and how that's impacted on their, the way they went about determining the final halachot. Um, if anyone's got any questions at any time, uh, you can raise a question. There'll definitely be time for questions at the end. Um, next week is going to take one big sugya, one striking sugya, which will, which I hope will demonstrate all of these points very, very clearly. Uh, the difference between the Tosavot and the Rambam, how it had enormous halakhic ramifications, enor enormous divergences in how they approached their, their method of study, and showing how the modern yeshiva world sometimes will try to read Rambam as if he were a Tosavist, and... Um, project, so to speak, Tosavist thinking onto the Rambam in a way which the early commentaries of the Rambam would never have considered viable or possible. So that's enough uh, of an introduction for now. I'm going to try sharing the screen again. It worked a minute ago. Excellent. So, can everyone see it? Yes. Thumbs up? Yeah, okay, great. So the, the, the question that comes up is, how did the Rishonim go about analyzing and determining law from the Talmud. How do they get the halacha from the Gemara? And one aspect that I'm not going to go into this evening, which is one big source of difference between Rambam and the Tosafot, is whether the extent to which it is legitimate to take halachot as they appear in the Gemara and say, well, that was understood, that was justified, that was made sense, that made sense, that was relevant at the time of the Gemara where certain social settings or certain things were understood, but nowadays things are different, and therefore we 
are permitted, we are perhaps obligated to amend the law. So whether things like uh, clapping and dancing on Shabbat, because that gezerah may not be relevant, whether it's a time, whether it's a matter of changing the time of lighting Hanukkah candles because people travel back home at a different time. There are many examples of that. And again, the Rambam, the Rif is normally stricter about this. The Balitoswas are much more willing, much more flexible. They're willing to they're more willing to bring in Svara. That is linked to what we're discussing this evening, but I'm I'm not going to go into that um so much. I discussed that more in the previous interview I had with Sina. This evening we're going to be looking at a different phenomenon, which is multiple sugyot. When you have one topic, one area of discussion, which is treated not just in one sugya, but perhaps in three, four, five different sugyots in different areas of Shas. Should we be attempting to try and unify all these disparate voices of the Talmud, put them together to try and maximize and bring in as many strands of Talmudic wisdom, so to speak, as we can within our when we within our uh, legal ruling, or should we try to identify the primary voice? Who is the who is the main speaker within the Talmud and rule like that person, that Rav? And as we're going to see, this is a major source of divergence in the methodologies of Rambam Rif on the one hand, with the Gaonim, and the Bale Tosfot on the other. So we're going to start with. It's a bit of a teasing source. This one is the introduction to Moranavuchim, the the famous contradictions that there are, and this is these are normally brought up for a different reason. But here we're looking at the first contradiction. The Rambam lists in just before he starts Moranavuchim, he lists seven different types of contradictions that may be found within various works and the different reasons for them. One moment. And he tries to give examples of each one. And the first type of contradiction that he brings is where the author, I'm reading now from the first source, the author has collected remarks of various people with different opinions, but he's omitted the citation of his authorities. Contradictions can be found in such statements because one of two propositions is the opinion of one individual, while the other proposition is the opinion of another individual. And so what, what we see here is the fact that you have an apparent contradiction within one work, but really it's not a contradiction, because this is just a likut. It is a collection of different statements of different people, different rabbis in this case. And for whatever reason, the identities have not been recorded. And the Rambam continues um, towards the end of this section by saying the contradictions and divergences that are to be found in the Talmud are due to this first cause and the second, which we'll leave out for now. Thus you find them saying constantly, in this matter, he agreed with this rabbi, and in that with another rabbi. One of the ways that the, that the Gemara resolves uh, apparent contradictions sometimes is by saying that a certain rabbi or a certain Gemara was of a split opinion. And therefore, we, the Rambam is not encouraging us to try and reconcile these different opinions. Rambam is saying straight out at the beginning that the Talmud is a, is a collection of many, many, dozens, hundreds of different rabbis who were present in the, in the Amoraic Bet Midrash. And it is many, many different opinions. And if you try to pull them together and combine them, you may end up with none of the opinions at all. That's source one. Source two Yad Malachi, which is an excellent book of Klalim of the Talmud. It goes to the Klalim of the Talmud, of the Rambam, the Rif. And it's a very, very short Klal, he writes. Um, 
the kolma kom the way of the Ramam is that any time you have two opposing opinions in the Talmud, and he understands that the Talmud has determined that the halacha should follow opinion A. By saying that we are posek like opinion A, that is means we're entirely removed from consideration opinion B and source B. We're not trying to bring it back on board. We're not trying to reconcile it. It is now irrelevant to our discussion. We have identified that source A, opinion A, for whatever reason, however we've identified it, is the halacha. And we're negating the the uh, input in terms of halacha of any other opinions which seem to counter it. Where does where does all this come from? Was it is it Rambam's own approach? Well, source three here. If we scroll down a bit, oh, you can see it. Actually, you're watching the same screen as me. So this is a quote from Rabbeinu Chananel's commentary to Baba Batra, fifty two a. And he's quoting a few lines down. He's quoting this piece in the name of Rav Haigon, who's one of the the uh, last of the Gaonim of uh, Bavel. Rav Haigon himself is quoting from his own teachers. So I don't know how many generations this goes back, but it's Rav Haigon quoting from his own teachers, presumably other Gaonim who preceded him. And he's giving a, a list of different klalim, different a list of different rules. And he starts off by saying. A rule about where anytime the word tuyufta is used, okay, and he goes on with this. But now, if we go down to I can show you the mouse for a minute to here, to this uh, square bracket, this is this is the crucial lines. Let us let's say you have two different Talmudic passages whose reasons appear to contradict one another. This is a standard fare for a, for, for a, a commentary of Toysfus or a standard fare for a contemporary yeshiva share. You have two sugyot and the conclusions of each seem to be in opposition to one another. So what does what uh, Rav Haigon say in the name of his uh, um, uh, in the name of his teachers? Heichadikashit tarvayu adodi betamayu where the reasons of these two sources are in contradiction with one another. And the Talmud itself does not offer a resolution to this question of Dinon, We are posek the halacha, even though it is a contradictory psak, we are posek halacha A one way, mutar, and halacha B the other way, asur. We do not concern ourselves. We do not concern ourselves with trying to find a reason to reconcile them. The, the, the more common methodology nowadays, as we're going to see, is when you have some sort of contradiction, you assume that there must be some kind of information, some sort of kimta, some kind of extra logical way of reconciling that we, that we don't have available. And we speculate to try and reconcile them, and we create halacha on that basis. The way that Rav Haigon is quoting from his Rabbeim, as we're going to see, this is also the way of Rambam, of Avram Ben Rambam, that no, when you have a, two contradictory sources, and there's no way of reconciling, uh, there's no apparent way from the Gemara itself of reconciling them, your posek, each sugya as it appears to be, and you do not concern yourself 
with trying to reconcile them. Now, as a, in opposition to that, that, that we've seen the uh, tradition uh, outlined of the Rambam and the Geonim of isolating different opinions within the Talmud, different sugyot within the Talmud, and at least where, for where it comes to determining the halakha from the Talmud, we do not concern ourselves with, or we don't qualify ourselves, give ourselves the authority of reconciling them and trying to bring both sources on board. If you look now at the next source, now we switch over to looking at the Bali Tosafot. And it's what is interesting this is the Maharshal in his Yam Shel Shlomo, his commentary on the, on the Gemara, is his introduction to Baba Kama. The Maharshal was one of the, was a staunch advocate, a passionate advocate and, uh, and, and supporter of everything Ashkenaz and the Bali Tosafot and all Ashkenazim in Hagim. And he would he fought fiercely for his authority. It came actually in some ways it's uh, some some people here will find interesting. He also opposed very much some of the um, the halachic rulings of the Shulchan Aruch, which came from Kabbalah, which came from which were claimed from the Rishon Ben Yochai, because that was not part of the Ashkenazi Masora. And he said a very powerfully written response to the Shul, the Shulchan Aruch when he it was a is a sukya about whether tefillin should be worn on a He said, even you're you're claiming that in from the Zohar of Rashumba Yochai that tefillin should not be worn on Cholamoid. Well, even if Rashumba Yochai walked into my Arbet Midrash here in uh, in France, or was that was Poland by then and, and, and told us you should not wear tefillin on Cholamoid, we still would not listen to him. Because we are Pasek according to our Gemara, according to our sages having interpreted it. So that's just that he's, he's a staunch advocate of everything Ashkenaz, and he's a big supporter of the Balei Tosfot. So here, what he writes is he, he's he's actually praising the Balei Tosfot. He's not he's not to de- what he's writing here is not attempting to denigrate them at all. He's praising them, and he's describing what great things they've done, the revolution the Tosfot have brought about with their methodology. So it's the bring the mouse along here, the middle par- paragraph. This is the Talmud that we are involved in. And it's from that that we, that we drink. We're not for the great wisdom of the French Bale Tosvat. They turned the whole Talmud into one Kadur, into one ball. Um... So what did what did the Balitosfot do? They turned what was a a flat work, a spread out work of many different opinions. They turned it all into one kador. They fixed and they combined the whole Talmud together. Meaning the imp- the impression being that previously we had all these different disparate statements and rulings and teachings in the Talmud and Halacha, and we didn't know how to reconcile them all. The took all these different statements and showed us how to reconcile them. So we no longer have to rule only like one and dismiss the others. We can now combine them all into one ball, which goes round and round and round, and nothing is dismissed. Everything is a valid source of Halacha. And we're now going to look at uh, some more recent, some more academic descriptions of these two methodologies before going to some examples of how this plays out in practical halakha. So what we have here is a quote from Professor Chaim Soloveitchik in his 
in his, uh, his a short essay called The Printed Page of the Talmud. And he's describing the, the again, it's sim similar to the Maharshal, but in uh, different sorts of words, the revolution and the, the, the great difference that was made by that was introduced really by the by the Baalei Tosavot and how they changed what had been the approach to studying a Talmud and to determining halacha from the Talmud up until that time. So it's not that the Tosavists were the first to note contradictions in the Talmud. Contradictions have been noted from the moment that the Talmud became normative. It, it, everyone could look at the Talmud and see what, as to why there are contradictions, whether they finish editing it, whether it was intended to be a, a document without uh, a work without contradictions. Putting that aside, but how did we how do we deal with these contradictions? That's that's the big question. So the approach that had previously prevailed was to follow, in cases of contradiction, the sugya de Schmeitzer, the dominant discussion. This is what we saw above with uh, with the Rambam. Your posek like one sugya de Schmeitzer, you identify the the primary sugya, and you dismiss the others. And that has how your posek. There's generally one major treatment of an issue in the Talmud, though that issue may reappear in the course of many other discussions. When confronted with a contradiction, one should follow the conclusions of the dominant discussion, even if other Talmudic discussions of the problem would seem to imply a different outcome. We're going to see some very clear examples of this coming up. So up until the Balei Tosvot, they would take the primary major treatment of a halakhic issue and follow its conclusions and not be concerned with tangential Talmudic discussions which seem to imply differently. However, the, pre uh, the premise of the dialectic, which is what he's using to describe the Tosafot, the premise of dialectic, however, is that there are no major and minor passages in the corpus. It re they reject the whole idea of there being a Sugudashmite, a primary voice that we listen to and ignore the others. All passages are of equal valence. I love that word. The Talmud in its totality is a harmonious whole. Talmudic discussions are indeed telegrammatic, and thus, through certain conditions of the case at bar, and oh sorry, though certain conditions of the case at bar are not always expressly spelled out, they're inferable from the discussion. And the task of the scholar, this is the methodology of the of Tosavot, which has become dominant in the Yeshiva world since. One of the tasks of a Talmudic scholar to ferret out the distinctiveness of each of the seemingly similar cases under discussion and thereby restore harmony to an apparently dissonant corpus. So this could not be more different in terms of methodology. The Rambam, the Rif, the, the Goanim that we've seen, tells you to look at each sugya, each passage in isolation. Your pasek, like each one in its place, you don't try to reconcile them. When there are multiple passages which deal with the same points, you identify the primary passage and you delete from considerations all other inferences from the Talmud, from all other passages. The Tosavot tell you, no, there are, there's no major minor passages. Everything is combined together. Everything is kadur echad. Everything is one ball. You've got no right, no ability to identify and dismiss minor voices. And if you are a, a better scholar you are, the more innovative ways you'll come up with finding out ways of reconciling kimtas and this, this sugya was only meant in this condition and that sugya was meant in that condition. And, that, and for those familiar with the, with the discussions of the Tosavot through Shas, this, this is the 60-70% of the Tosavot 
follow this sort of pattern. Contradiction between sugyat. No, this sugyat applies under scenario A, and this other sugyat applies under scenario B. Now, we, this is a another one second. This is the Nitziv, who is another Ashkenazi source identifying the different methodologies of Tosfot and Rambam and the Gaonim. And he does it, he's, he's looking at it in terms of the Masorah, the tradition that they received. What's particularly interesting here is that the Nitziv was a Rosh Hashiva Velozhin. Velozhin was one of the the uh, flagship Ashkenazi European yeshivas in Lithuania before the war. And the Nitziv, this is what he writes. He says, So, so the Gaonim who, who came after the compilers of the Talmud, Yodu, Kama Shvilim Pshutim they knew many simple paths to navigate this paltron as a palace, I think. They could they could uh, it's referring to the Talmud and it's it's many uh it's, it's some kind of maze, different, different, uh, different roads, different ways of going through it. The Gaonim has a tradition at a Masara, uh, the Kabbalah, of how to navigate simply through these paths. So shall this tap this tapku. This caused them not to have many doubts in terms of halacha. This meant that at least when it came to determining halacha, they did not need to resort to koacha pilpul. They didn't have to innovate and have to come up with different principles and different contexts and conditions for the various Talmudic discussion. Because they had a simple path and masara through which to understand and determine halakha from the Talmud. However, Gala Kvota Torah Mibavel Bidinat Sarafat. When the Kavoda Torah, when there, there, was a, there was a bunch of persecution and exile, and the Kavoda Torah ended up being exiled to Sarafat, to France, Eretz Lora'u Ora Kabbalah Sudura. They didn't receive their their tradition from Bobel in an organized way. It was a, as in, they definitely, there definitely is some kind of Masorah. There is that if you find the Bali uh, Tosfat, the Rashi, um, quoting sources from the Gaonim, but it wasn't received in a, in a direct way, in the same language. They weren't in contact so much. And through the generations, it was a Kabbalah which was not Sudura. And therefore, they didn't have the same. Kabbalah of how to approach the sugyot according to the Nitziv. So they had to compensate for their their lack of um, uh, their lack of Kabbalah, their lack of knowledge of how to navigate the palace through iyun chakira, through study and chakira, meaning investigation and trying to understand yagu shvil chadash Again, the Nitziv isn't criticizing this; he sees this as something positive as well, meaning you've got the Kabbalah aspect from the Gaonim and you've got the creativity from the Balei Tosfat, and these are all parts of the Torah that we learn, and the Nativ is, what's interesting is just seeing how the Nativ brings out both of these aspects. The tradition, as it was received, apparently a simple tradition of the Gaonim, and a more complex, creative, innovative tradition of the Balei, of the Balei Tosfat, which, as we've seen, will pull together different sources to try and 
and create a new understanding of Zogiot. And he goes on to say the Ramban is, is also somewhere between the two. And he finishes over here by saying, Lokin, Rishon, Lara, Arambam, Aragola, Hulamad, Mirabo, Me'aviv, Rabbeinu, Maimon. So he learned a tradition from his father. So he's he's really saying that the tradition of the Rambam is like that of the Geonim. He had a simple path through the Sugyot, which seems to be how to identify the Sugyot at the primary passage and then rule like it. And therefore he was not part of the, the uh, tradition of Eretz Tzarfat, who did not have the Kabbalah Sudura, didn't have the the ordered tradition from the Ga'anim, and therefore we were chutzuchi, they were forced to use Yenon Chikira. So that's coming from the Netziv, who was a, again, a Rosh Yeshiva of the, one of the flagship Yeshivas in Lithuania of Velozhin. So a, a, a question often comes up that how can we suggest that the Rambam, the Rif, the Ga'anim, how can we justify the methodology of the Rambam of ignoring dialectics, ignoring Okimtas, ignoring this sort of analysis, surely the the Amoraim themselves use this sort of dialectic methodology, this sort of pilpul, these Okimtas, when they're analyzing the Mishnah. And later Amoraim use the same methodology of pilpul, of Okimtas, when they were analyzing the opinions of early Amoraim. You find them very often trying to contextualize and bring together earlier opinions. And there are a couple of, of, of opinions here of uh, scholars here who make this very point. The Tosavist, Ephraim Orbach said, the Tosavists availed themselves of the particular interpretive methods and techniques of the Amoraim. The same logical analogies. Each homotic statement was subject to vigorous examination, meaning, what he's saying is that the Tosfot really were c- continuing the process of the Gemara. It, what the Stamad de Gemara, or the later Amoraim, did to the early Amoraim, and what Amoraim all did to the Mishnah of taking different opinions and trying to analyze them and put them in context, that's exactly what Tosfot were doing to the Gemara. They, they didn't innovate any new methods. They were just trying to continue. Again, later schools like, like Brisk and other schools did come up with new methodologies, but Tosfot themselves were using Talmudic methodologies to analyze the Talmud. So, so wouldn't the, the rabbis in the Talmud have expected their own words to have been dealt with in the same way as they dealt with uh, the words of their predecessors? So if all Tosfot were doing was continuing the work of the Talmud, what is it, why would the Rambam and the Rif and the Ganim not have chosen to do exactly the same thing? Why is it that no prior Rishon, as far as we can see, none of the Ganim appeared to have adopted this methodology of the Tosafot? So this is something which I look at also in this chapter six of my new book, Talmud Reclaimed. Because one question is, is it, is it, a, is it a correct methodology? And the other is, are you authorized to use such a methodology? There's a there's a uh, big elephant in the room, really, which is hanging over all of the all of the Rishonim, all of the medieval scholars, which is that Ravina Ravashi Sofara'a. There's this principle which they all accept to more or lesser extent. They they apply it in different ways, but all Rishonim accept the idea that Hora'a, Halacha, new legal rulings could not be issued 
after the time of the sealing of the Talmud, Ravina and Ravashi. So when, so when you come along and you take two earlier opinions of the Amorayim, and instead of reading them at face value, you, you use your own svara to say, well, this one doesn't fit with that one. A statement A does not fit with statement B. So therefore, what am I going to do? I'm going to come up with this great idea to try and reconcile them and say statement A only applies in this scenario, statement B applies in other scenarios. So it could very well be that Rambam and the Geonim would view that as a form of horror, because that, that resolution is not in the Gemara. So what you're essentially doing is you are projecting, you're imposing your own ideas, your own resolution onto the words of the Amorayim, and you're using that to create essentially a new halacha, which isn't written in the Talmud. So if you have a very strict idea of how determining law of the Talmud should work, like it seems to be the Rambam and the Goanim had, then if you try to impose ideas and make a kintas, we're going to look at some examples in just a minute, then you may be stepping over the, the red line of Sofara'a, you cannot innovate. You're not a Sanhedrin, you don't need a base in a god, you cannot innovate. The Tosafat may have thought, no. This is just the way that, that law is interpreted. The, the, any legal interpretation, any way of reading any law, has some subjective input by the judge. Any time a judge is looking at a precedent or is interpreting a statute, some kind of basic logic has to come into it. And this is to an extent that, again, I also go through in the chapter that there, were, there was a major uh, dispute in, juris, in uh, jurisprudence, legal philosophy, throughout the 20th century between the legal positivists who were very, who very believed in a very strict methodology, <coughs> sorry, for interpreting law. And then others such as Dworkin who believed, no, there's no, there's no such thing as strictly interpreting law, because any time you try to interpret law, you're essentially having to add to it and having to contextualize it. So again, I'm not going to go into this now, but I believe that there are two very different legal methodologies at play. And there's also the fact that the Rambam and the Goanim seem to possess this Kabbalah, this tradition of how to isolate and choose between and uh, different opinions in order to determine simply the halacha from the Talmud. Whereas, according to the Natsiv, Tosfot did not have such a Kabbalah, did not have such a, such a tradition in, in a Masudara way, in a, in, a clear, in a clear, transparent way. So that is the theory. Now we're going to have a look at some examples of how this has played out. So the first example is going to look um, at, well, the first one's only going to look at the Rambam, and then we're going to look at some examples which contrast Rambam and the Bani Tosvat. So it's a very big sugya, which is often talked about, about mitzvot srikat kavana. Do, when you perform a mitzvah, but you're not really thinking about what you're doing, have you fulfilled the mitzvah or not? And why is it a big sugya, as much talked about? Because the basic case law seems to be contradictory. And we're going to bring a couple of the there, 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 are, there are many different cases. We'll just bring a couple here from Mishnah Torah. Hilchat Shafar, chapter 2, Allah 4. So if you are just, it's just it's the Rosh Hashanah, you're standing around in the streets, you're, you're, you're practicing the Shafar, 
and you're, 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 right, you're teaching it, or you're practicing it, you're not, you're not having anything in your mind about performing a mitzvah, you're just practicing, you're fooling around with a shofar, no, not good enough. That's You haven't had any kavana there, and therefore you're not yotzah. So he carries on a few different examples of this in this halacha. The rule seems to be, if you do not have kavana that you're performing a mitzvah, you're just uh, blowing the shofar absentmindedly, you're not yotzah. However, we look at Hilchot Chametz Matzah, Achal Matzah below kavana. If you eat matzah lela seda without any kind of intention that you're performing a mitzvah, even if this is you're forced against your will, someone puts a gun to your head and says, "Eat matzah," um, and you eat the matzah against your own will, you, you still fulfill the mitzvah. And there are many other many other cases. There's megillah, there's mikvah, there's, there's plenty of other cases here, but we're not going to go through all of them. But the the classic commentaries sort of a field day on this, trying to reconcile the different rulings of the Rambam. How, how is it the Rambam rules in some places? It seems that mitzvahs do require kavana. If you don't have kavana, you're not yoked, so you're, you're here. And other cases seems to say, no, you don't have to have kavana at all. So Rambam is contradicting himself. It must be there's some sort of clever resolution here that we can use to reconcile them. Magid Mishnah, who's even quite an earlier early commentary on the Rambam, he says, no, he can't find any reconciliation which he's satisfied with. And he assumes that there's a corrupt Gerasa there and he leaves it at that, which is actually interesting because some, some commentaries will actually go and amend the Gerasa on their own uh, <laughs> on their own steam. Magamisha just says he, he can't find any way to reconcile these. He assumes there's some sort of corrupted Gerasa and he leaves it at that. Now look at the words of Avram and Arambam, Rambam's own son, who studied with the Rambam, how he understood his father's methodology. This is, I've lost the reference here. It's in the, I think it's Simon 34 of his Shavat. So, so he's contrasting the, the laws about hearing Shofar and Megillah. Shofar, if you don't have Kavanah, you're not Yotzah. Megillah, no, you do. Megillah, one second. Hildaf, Beshofar Megillah, Tzrikin Kavanah, let's say, Kedukyadamasnisin. When it comes to Shofar and Megillah, it arises that you do need to have Kavanah in order to fulfill the mitzvah. Where Kriyat Shema, Vachilad Matzah, Tzvilad Mei Mikvah, reciting Shema, eating Matzah, and Tzvilad Mei Mikvah, to see exactly what that case is, so the first set of cases, we see a, a, a series of cases from that the, the Rambam says the mitzvah, uh, the mitzvah do need kavana, and a second series of cases where we see the Rambam rules the mitzvah do not need kavana. How do we put this together? Well, according to Rabbi Menar Rambam, this is this goes according to the sukya in each different case. And if you've got a question on my father's Mishnah uh, Torah, what are the differences between Shofar and Megillah on the one hand, where you have to have Kavanah from the other Mitzvot? This is certainly a deep, valid, legitimate question. This question is one that you should address to the Gemara, not to my father. 
meaning my father, the Rambam, was just involved with identifying each halakha, what the conclusion was, and writing it down in the Mishnah Torah. He doesn't try to reconcile them and bring in his own innovations. Whereas we can imagine the, the many of the other commentaries through the years have tried to come up with different reasons to distinguish and differentiate between these different mitzvot and rule differently on, on that basis. Now we come to an example where we, where we contrast the rulings of Rambam and the Tosfot. There's a question over the reciting a bracha on tefillin. So as you know, there's a difference in practice. Um, Sephardim will generally say one bracha, la niach tefillin, when they put on the tefillin on the arm. And that will cover the tefillin shaliyad and the tefillin shal rosh. Whereas Ashkenazim, I don't know if it's, if it's a complete uh, uh, Svadi Ashkenazi divide here, but Ashkenazim, from what I can tell, will say two brachot. Sephardim will say one bracha. Ashkenazim will say laniach on the yad and mitzvah to fit in on the rosh. And Sephardim will say just laniach on both. So now if we have a look at it, this is actually a story of two different sugyot of the Gemara. So we start off here with brachot. So this is a list and brachot daf samach of a whole list of different brachas that you say for different things you do in the morning. And in passing, the Gemara says, <clears throat> when you place a tefillin on your arm, when you put the tefillin on your head, so this seems to be in accordance with the Ashkenazi practice. However, we have another sugya from Masechet Menachot, which I would say we're going to see is, is a whole sugya, the whole, this is the primary sugya where the laws of tefillin are situated. So this would be the sugya de Shemaitza. And we have differences of opinion here. Omar of Chista. If you if you make a hefsek, if you speak between putting on one tefillin and the other tefillin, you have to go back and make a new bracha. See what that means. Sach in lo sach lo. Only if you interrupt, you have to make a second bracha. But in a normal situation, you'd only make one bracha. So this would seem to accord with the Sephardi approach of only making one bracha on tefillin. But do we not have a report in the name of Rabbi Yochanan? Do we not say in the name of, of Rabbi Yochanan that there's one bracha that said on the shel yad, which is laniach? So the Gemara objects. Do we not have um, a, a, another report? Of from the Rabbi Yochanan, that's really you should put on. You should put. You should say two brachot, one on each of the tefillin. The Gemara doesn't say anything back to that. But then we have the latter opinions of Abayah and Rava, who are about Rai, The final opinion, Damitravayu, they both agree. They seem to uphold the original tradition of Rav Chista that. In a normal situation, a regular situation where there are no interruptions, only one bracha is made. 
So what we have here is you have these sugya and brachot that says straight out two, that there are two brachot made for tefillin, one on each. And then you have the sugya in menachot, which seems to be the sugya de shmaita. So it spends many pages talking about tefillin there. Where it seems to be a difference of opinion, but the latter opinion of the Batra'i, Batra'i, the latter opinion that we normally follow of the Sugat Shmaitza is you say one bracha. And sure enough, if we go down to so the Rambam here in Hilchot Filin, chapter four, in Sach Harizua Veira, the Tsarik Lavarech Bracha Shmiya Amitzat Tefillin, Bachalakach Meniach Shalosh. I haven't brought up the whole passage of the Rambam, but he states, like Abai and Rava, who are the the Batra'i, the latter opinion in the Sugya Deshmaitza, the primary discussion in the Nachat, that under normal circumstances you say one bracha, and only if you end up talking after putting the first tefillin on your your arm before you put it on your head, then you've made a have six, you have to make a second bracha. So the Rambam and Rashi actually also in the Sugya, Rashi being prior to Tosfat, you know, he's in Ashkenaz, Rashi and the Rambam both pasek, both understand it that you say one bracha altogether on the tefillin, unless there is some kind of interruption, then you say two. They, this this pasak again is seems to be reached by identifying the sugya deshmaitza, the primary halachic discussion, which is a menachot, and ruling according to the latter opinion in that the batrai. Once we've done that, as we've seen from our earlier discussion. All other opinions elsewhere in Shas, all other tangential minor discussions are deleted. They are taken out of consideration as far as halacha is concerned. And that is the ruling of Rambam. If we look up now at the Tosfat, however, which appears in, in the Sugya and Brachot, Tafsamach, we see something very, very interesting. We see how he approaches trying to put together these two different Sugyot. Because as remember, as we've seen, the Tosfot don't accept this idea of there being a major and minor sugya. It's all kador echad, it's one ball. And the sugyot are telegrammatic, they're all in contact with another, and you have to somehow reconcile these different sugyot. So where are we going to start from? Okay, so he's quoting Rashi here, which is, which is the same as the Rambam. The, from uh, the Perak comments. So again, his he's, he's, starting point is the Sugi and Brachot, because that's where this Tosfat is written, and uh, which says there are, there are two Brachot. But Perak comments in uh, Menachot, which, which is the primary Sugi, as we saw, according to the Rambam, Omar loy sach mavarech achat, sach mavarech shtayim. If you didn't talk, you didn't interrupt between the two Tefillins, you only make one Bracha. And you only make the second bracha of our mitzvah to fill in in a scenario in which there's an interruption. Here is our contrast. The understanding of Rashi, which is the simple understanding of the Gemara, dal meaning it's talking about both tefillin. On both tefillin, together, you'd only say one bracha without, in a normal situation, if there's been no interruption, or two with an interruption. So he's, he's attacking this opinion based on Svara. Again, we're seeing now Tosfot bringing in a Svara and a, their own logic to challenge what is the simple meaning of the Gemara. 
The simple meaning of the Gemara is that this discussion is, is on both tefillin together because the whole passage has been discussing both tefillin together. Do you make one bracha or two brachot on both tefillin as a package? And Rashi goes along with this simple meaning. And Tosa said, no, dochek loma. This is, this, is a, this is a forced, far-fetched thing to say. He said it's, it's, it's not very logical that the that the Chachamim uh, would have instituted a second bracha, al-mitzvah tefillin, which only exists in a scenario where you've been over and over and you've interrupted between the two tefillin. And there's a certain logic to that. Do we find any other brachot which you only say in a scenario when you've done an Avera? That really you're supposed to only say one bracha, la'aniach. But if you go wrong and you're mafsik and you start talking, oh, now I've got another bracha to say, la'amitzvat. So on that basis, by, on the basis of that svara, that logical, uh, that logic which has been introduced to the, to the sugya, Tosfat are willing to overturn the simple meaning of this, of this, of this sugya the so he reinterprets this whole sugya of saying two brachot to be referring only to the shel rosh. That really you always say two brachot, like, sorry. For both tefillin together, you'll always have two brachot, like we have in these sugya and brachot. One on the shell yad, one on the shell rosh. However, where you've interrupted between the two, you'll now say both brachot again on the shell rosh. The shell rosh, he explains again, there's another svara he's bringing in. Shell rosh is the more important tefillin. It's the gemara mitzvah. It's got the it's got the dalad batim. It's got four skulls in. It's got a shin. He brings in many different things we see in other sugyot of Shas to try and justify saying that this sugya of saying two brachot on the tefillin is talking about only one of the tefillin. And that's an interpretation which goes away from the simple meaning of this sugya de in order to reconcile it with the other sugya and brachot. So what we have here is Tosfot applying, again, in terms of the Savara itself is very reasonable. Um, it, it does seem unlikely that Chazal would have invented a second bracha only for people of Avanavera. Uh, but taking the sugya at face value, if you're if you're the Rambam, you say, keep your svara out of it. Show me what the Gemara says at face value and pasek according to it. And that is one bracha altogether on the tefillin, and the second one only if you're you make a hefsek. Tosafot uh, bringing the svara. And the fact you have another sugya in brachot that says two brachot to try and reconcile them and say no. Really, there, there are two brachot on the whole to fit in together. And if there's a hefsek, then you have an additional one. So that is that is one example. And ooh, running out of time, because it's Rosh Chodesh, at least for me, maybe should I do the second example quickly about uh, whether you recite a bracha on, on uh, Halel on Rosh Chodesh. So is it a bit of a simpler example, perhaps? So we have a primary sugya. Um, Arachin um, Dafyod, which lists 
all of the different days of the calendar year on which Halal is, is recited. It's a certain number, it's, it's 18 days in Eretz Israel. It's, it's, additional, it's additional three days in Chutzaretz. You've got uh, Yom Tov Sheni. And it even goes through, it says, what about Rosh Chodesh, the Ikri Moed? Rosh Chodesh is called a Moed. Maybe we should also say Halal on Rosh Chodesh. Lo Iktesh Esiyad Malacha. No. Since Rosh Chodesh does not have a, a proper law uh, preventing you from doing Malacha, it's not a fully sanctified day. And therefore, we do not say Halal on Rosh Chodesh at all. This is the primary sugya. So any time you, you may find some sort of minhag to say Halal, that it does, could only be a minhag, that can't be a binding halacha, you could say a bracha on, seemingly. And this is the Psak of the Rambam here, Hilchot Megillah. So places that keep two days of Yom Tov Chutz have 21 days where they do the entire Halal. Okay, skip on to here. On Rosh Chodesh, the reciting Halal is only a Minhag, it's not a Mitzvah. It's only done at a tzibur uh, in in the when the whole tzibur is is davening together. And the way we show that we're not doing the full mitzvah of halal is that we skip certain parts. And we do not say a bracha on this halal because you don't say a bracha on a minhag. It seems pretty straightforward here. The Gemara, the, the primary source, has said. You do not say halal on Rosh Chodesh. So if there's a minhag which is generated to start reciting certain tehillim, which is effectively what halal is without a bracha, then you don't say a bracha on it because you're not commanded. You're not commanded to say halal because there's no mitzvah in the Gemara. However, Tosfat in Arachin identified two indications from tangential sugyot that lead them to believe that Halel should be recited with a bracha on Rosh Chodesh. One is from a Sechet Tanit. It's a story about, it's an account of Rav visiting Bavel, and he saw, according to this account, that they were reciting Halel on Rosh Chodesh. doesn't say whether they're saying a bracha or not. He thought, maybe he should stop them. Rav, Rav sees they're saying Halel, that it's against the Halachad, you're not supposed to. So he thought, shall I stop them? Kim the Kamadalgi, since he realized that they were skipping certain parts, they weren't doing it at the halacha only the minahag. So he let once he saw that they were not reciting halal properly, they were leaving out certain parts. He thought, oh, that's it. They're only doing it according to the minhag, not according to halacha. The, the deduction of Tosfat is Mashmashirahayasavoshaloyu so, so the deduction made here and elsewhere in the Tosfat is that Rav would only have wanted to stop them from reciting Halal if it had been done with a bracha. If it's not been done with a bracha, why would he stop them? So based on that, and another sugya in brachot, which we're not going to have time to go to now, which talks about whether it talks about interruptions that are made during Halal on Rosh Chodesh, Tosfat understands that there was a certain minhag, a certain practice to recite 
halal moshchodesh. And we call mokom omer abenu tam the tzorich lavarechalov. You are supposed, you are required to recite the bracha on halal. Tikach mashma haftosavalav sukinhu shemavarechinalav. The fact that Rav was about to step in and say, "Stop! You're breaking halacha." Implied shemavarechinalav. They were breaking a bracha on it. Imlokin. If he saw they weren't making a bracha over at the beginning, he would have seen straight away it was a minhag. So what what do we have here? To summarize, we've got a primary sugya in Erechin, the Mishnah, which says straight off, these are the days you say halal, 18 or 21 days, and it explicitly says, Rosh Chodesh, no. And that's the sugya d'shmaitza, the primary discussion so according to Rambam's rules, everything else is deleted. Nothing else matters. Everything else is, is outside the framework and the parameters when you're determining halakha. You have two other sources which, from which the Tosafot deduce, and again, not all commentaries agree with, with these deductions, let's put that aside. Two other sources, one's an account of Rav visiting Bobel, another is a, is a discussion about interruptions during halal, Two other sources from tangential Talmudic passages, which are taken to mean that Halal was said with a bracha. And, as a, and, Ra, and Rabbeinu Tam was, was willing, on the account of these two tangential passages, to overturn the primary passage in Erechim. And uh, we're not going to go through the, the, run, the run here, which is also interesting in its own right. He connects this to a greater discussion over whether bracha is made on a minhag. Because there's a general ruling which is consistent throughout all the works of the Rambam, that and it's also Rashi as well, being pre tosfat that you never make a brachana minhag, and that seems to come out of the Gemara and Sukkot that uh, you don't say a bracha when you when you hit the uh, the arava on Hashanah Rabbah, because you don't make because that's a minhag and you don't make a brachana minhag. And on this basis, we find Rashi students say that he actually publicly objected to the to the to saying uh, bracha on halal in, in his community. But anyway, what we have here is that the Tosfot, in order to justify, in order to explain their ruling that you say a bracha on halal on Rosh even though it's a minhag, they had to come up with a whole new innovative way of distinguishing between different types of minhag. Minhag de chashuv, like saying halal Mashkadesh, because that's some type of praise for God. And minhag, which is not chashuv, like hitting an arava on the ground, which even though is a minhag apparently from the Nevi'im. And again, this leads to a whole new pill in its own right, how you categorize each minhag. Is it chashuv? Is it not chashuv? None of it has any uh, reference to it explicitly in the, in the Gemara itself. And the run sort of points out that the Rambam here has a simplicity, both in terms of He's ruling, he's following the, the Suga the Shmaitza on terms of Halal, that you don't say, I've got the primary Suga saying you don't say Halal on Rosh Chodesh. And he has a simple ruling, he can stick to his ruling that you never say a bracha and a minhag. Whereas the Tosavot have to start um, reconciling and building whole edifices of analysis and new principles to try and justify which minhagim do justify a bracha and which do not. So I'm going to leave it here. A couple of minutes over time. Um, are there any questions at this stage? Um, next week we're going, to, we're going to take one big case study which goes through many of these principles 
and we'll also show how Ramban is understood in in the modern yeshiva world, uh, particularly the British methodology, um, as having adopted the Tosvot uh, approach to things, and how he's often misunderstood, really, in when when people adopt this methodology. So, any any questions at this stage? Thank you, Rav. That was beautifully presented. If anyone has any questions, they can simply unmute or write in the chat box, raise their hands. Uh, Alan. Yes, uh, thank you for a very clear presentation. Um, I, I just wanted to ask you if there were any implications, as far as you could see, from these two different methodologies, as far as the question of stringency and leniency is concerned. Certainly in the examples that you gave us, it appeared that the methodologies of the Tosafot did add additional obligations. Um, but is that something that you see as a general pattern in these two different types of methodology? Um, I'm not sure that I do. Is it, it's an issue. I, I bring I bring about 30 case studies in one of the appendices of my book. I haven't really tracked through them to see which are more lenient, which are stricter. One thing which does stand out, which we find it happens here in the, in the Halal case is that the Tosfot will often tr try at the same time as pooling together different sources, they'll do it in a way which tries to justify their tradition, their minhag. So they had a minhag of saying brachot on Halal, whereas Rashi objected to the minhag saying it doesn't, it's not the cleaning of the Talmud, the Tosfot tried to reconcile the suyot in a way which justified it. So I do see that. I'm not sure I see it in terms of... Uh, I think it goes both ways, just off the top of my head, but it could be it does tend more one way or the other. But uh, yeah, so it's a good question. Okay, so thank you very much, everyone, for, for coming. Wishing everyone a Chodesh Tov. It's probably it maybe Chodesh for more people now than it was when we started. And yeah, hope to see you all back next week for the, uh, the big case study, which yeah, I think is going to be very, very interesting. Thank you so much, Rafael. Thank you, everyone, for the stuff, and hopefully we can see you all in the second installment. Thanks.